I mean, I think you can safely say that somebody is not going to buy a massive number of enterprise seats uh, in a piece of software because they happen to see a video on TikTok. Like, I don't think that that sort of direct tie necessarily exists. What it does do, I think, is lend itself to this bigger concept that we were like very dedicated to at Notion around ubiquity. And just can we make this thing as ubiquitous as humanly possible, where people feel like they are hearing about it from all sides. They saw a billboard, they saw it on Twitter, they heard about it from a friend. Like we wanted to like surround sound as much as we possibly could. You don't go from unknown startup to household name without a great community strategy. That was definitely the case for Notion. Today, I'm very excited to chat with Camille Ricketts, the former head of marketing at Notion. Welcome to Grow and Tell, the show where revenue leaders tell their growth stories behind successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Krakoff. Camille Ricketts is one of the best content marketers in tech and one of my favorite people to nerd out with about marketing. She started her career as a journalist for the Wall Street Journal and VentureBeat before joining Tesla in 2010 to lead PR and comms and work with Elon Musk. After leading content at Kiva for two years, she spent five years at First Round Capital, where she started First Round Review, which is one of my favorite startup publications. She even had a brief stint working at the White House for US Digital Services in 2016. But today, Camille joins me to talk about leading marketing at Notion where she joined as the 11th employee and helped them take off like a rocket ship. Camille and I discussed how Notion approached building community, how they partnered with ambassadors and influencers, and the importance of ubiquity to their marketing strategy. I hope you enjoyed today's chat. So I'd love to start today's conversation with your time at Notion. So you joined Notion in 2019 as the first marketing hire and 10th employee. And today, Notion is a household name with over 400 employees and a $10 billion valuation. But I'd love to talk about the beginning. What were those early days like? And can you kind of give it a sense of, you know, what was the vibe in the office? How big was the company? Yeah, absolutely. So just for like putting an accurate point on it, I was employee number 11. Don't want to step on employee number 10. (laughs) So when I got there, it, it honestly felt like a family. And I know that that's like a silly thing to say, perhaps. But, you know, the way that the office was designed and the vibe, like it was all take your shoes off at the door. Let's all have lunch around the same table. You know, there was an area where we did all hands that had a rug that co-founder and CEO Ivan Zhao had in his house when he was growing up as a kid. It just felt like a space that was designed for people doing something like really key and important together. And the environment that was created, I think, lent itself to a lot of creativity and then also just a lot of like cross-population among everybody that was there, regardless of what their skill set was. So I worked really closely with designers and the technical side of the house from day one. And that was such a gift. And you mentioned Ivan Zhao, who's one of the founders of of Notion. And I'd love to kind of hear what like your early conversations with him. What did Ivan say was sort of your initial priority when you started? Do you remember what those initial goals were? Yeah, I remember in particular, our first office was this big warehouse space. I think it had been like an auto body garage where the person who ran it actually lived above it. So it was like this big open space in the bottom. And then we had like this apartment that was on top where all the meeting rooms were. And we had one meeting room that had this whiteboard in it. And he and I would like draw out the funnel together and then be like, okay, here's what we think needs to happen at every single stage of the funnel. And then if we do our work correctly, like here, all the people at the bottom of the funnel are like going to go back up and like lend itself to all this awareness. So I think that that was, you know, helping us visualize what needed to happen but also was like the kernel of what 
became this early community effort that I think has really defined the Notion experience. This idea that there were so many people who could be activated as advocates who already authentically loved what the product was doing for them and figuring out how we can work with them, nurture them, make it possible for them to amplify what what they were doing with more people. But truly, that was sort of like the nuts and bolts of what that early experience looked like. And then, you know, figuring out what were the strengths already on the ground, like social media was already uh, proving itself to be a wonderful distribution mechanism for Notion. So figuring out like what is the tone of voice and velocity that would further build on itself there. And then, of course, a key part of this is realizing that ambassadorship was going to be a big part of the story and bringing on Ben Lang to run community. That happened like the, the month after I joined. So that was in quick succession. And I'm excited. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about community. But before we get into that, I want to talk like more at a high level about kind of like positioning notion overall, because it seems to me like a really hard product to position, especially in the early days. So many different use cases and personas. It's both B2B and B2C in some ways. And like it kind of goes against all early stage advice where it's like, all right, pick one wedge and, and stick with it. But that's also like the beauty with with Notion. And so, yeah, I don't know. It must have been hard to explain. Like, how did you approach kind of that that challenge? I think it made prioritization particularly thorny, like figuring out where we wanted to invest. Because on one hand, the B2C side was just taking off internationally in a huge way. People were using Notion to plan their weddings, go to school, all kinds of long tail use cases. And the ambassadors that we were able to recruit into that early community were just so excited about all of the potential. And they were wanting to run in-person meetups and all of that. And then at the same time, like from the very beginning, we wanted the story to be about how this was a tool for teams. So making sure we were able to allocate enough of our energy and enough of our activity in that direction. And I think what was really beneficial about that early community strategy is it was really able to drive forward a lot of the B2C messaging, particularly in markets where we would never be able to invest that early, while the team in-house, which, you know, was very bare bones to start and then grew over time, could be a little bit more focused on making sure that the website was messaged for teams, making sure that we were appearing across channels and telling that story and starting to assemble customer testimonials and case studies, uh, all of that. And when you say teams, like what were the use cases? What were the things that teams were actually sort of using Notion for? I mean, a big part of that early effort was figuring out what that ICP and what the positioning for that ICP was going to be. And so really paying attention to all of the folks coming in through the website and who they were, making sure that our onboarding was oriented in order to capture that data and information And what that yielded for us was this visibility that the people who loved Notion the most professionally and were really sort of bringing it to teams and expanding were engineering designers uh, and product marketers. And so could we then create storytelling on the website that was really uh, tailored to each of their specific needs? So for, you know, engineers, it was definitely roadmapping oriented, project management, Uh, for product managers, a lot of sort of documentation use casing, and then making sure that, you know, out there in the world, we were like appearing at events, appearing in newsletters, et cetera, that we're all going to target those particular audiences. 
And I remember Lattice was, I don't know how early we were, but we started to use Notion fairly early on. And yeah, I think our main use case was like Wiki, right? It was like a place to yeah. sort of organize all of our documentation and all the different crazy, you know, we had no documentation as a startup before Notion. And then it really helped us sort of professionalize that, distribute it uh, to the rest of the company. Yeah. And I actually have to I owe you a big thank you because you were one of that those first early video use cases that ended up being the gift that kept giving because we we decided to do a bunch of these videos. We did like five of them and Lattice was chief among them and went to the office and interviewed a bunch of people. And we had no idea that the next year the pandemic was going to descend and it was going to be completely impossible to get that type of footage and that type of material. So those sort of five videos that we ended up capturing went on to have long, long, impactful lives. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I always tell people, you want to do those because then you can use every single part of them. It was also good creative for my friends to make fun of me where they're like, wait, wh- why are you in this ad for this company? Like, what's going on? And I'm like, you know, <laughs> doing, a, doing a case study thing. This was, that was very funny. Um, <laughs> I'd love to talk about like, kind of building the marketing program over time because you started with like community content and design and sort of didn't in- invest into things like performance and demand gen until much later. Sort of how did you think about building the marketing program over time? And, and why did you sort of structure your investment in that way? Yeah, I think that we saw that the organic wave was going to serve us pretty well early on. Um, and so we wanted to ride that as much as possible. Uh, and Notion has always been, I think, really efficient in the way that it approaches things and understanding how it can scale on certain strengths and scale on certain systems. Uh, and so it wasn't necessarily until like, 2020, the summer of 2020, when we brought on our very first sort of performance marketing hire, Fab David, that's when things really started turning. But that was sort of like 18 months into what we were doing. And so much of the growth program prior to that, um, and I can't take any credit for this, Jamie Quint was running growth at the time and is a genius at that, was about making sure that the tooling was all set up correctly, that the website was performing optimally, all of that. We had started doing some newsletter sponsorship running some experiments with SEM, but we really didn't turn the key on it until later and relied heavily on all of those organic programs. The two that I'll call out, two among sort of an array of things that we were doing was the startup partnership program. So really capitalizing on channel partners that reach the startup audience. And I'm happy to go into more detail there, as well as influencer and really making sure that we were leveraging folks who were already authentically really engaged with the product out there. So let's let's get really in the weeds around community. I'd love to start with maybe like definitions because like community can be sort of an abstract and nebulous concept for a lot of folks. Like I feel like it can mean everything from social media to like your email list. Like how do you think about defining community at Notion? I think that community can be defined many, many different ways. And also you have to be really precise about what form of it is right for you. Uh And I think that Notion, we ended up going with like a fairly traditional, I would say, look and feel of community where we truly did build a Slack room. That was just a lot of really talkative folks that were constantly helping each other troubleshoot, coming to the group with opportunities, wanting to host things, like sort of wanting to expand their involvement of it. So it's very classic. That's not going to be the case for every single company, sort of depending on how enterprise oriented or, you know, what, what exactly what it is that you are trying to sell out there. Um, but at Notion, we definitely wanted to not only take advantage of how excited and how like purely creative this group of people was, um, and wanting to like elevate them as part of this, but 
but also recognizing that there was like actually an asset that most of them were creating that was super shareable in the form of templates. Like really the atomic unit of all of this behavior was folks wanting to build something, getting really excited about how beautiful and useful it was, and then showing it to other people through all these various means. And so we wanted to help people do that as much as possible. Yeah, it's amazing the number of people who've like created a business off of Notion. I mean, there's like course makers and consultants. There's so many people, as you said, who like make these Notion templates to kind of share with other folks. Like, was that a deliberate strategy for Notion or more like organic? And then you sort of helped foster it into the future. I would say that Ben is a very strategic minded person. So I think that he saw the seeds of these things that were going to be able to be expanded upon. But I think he would agree with me when I say that we tried to like follow people as much as possible. And whenever we saw a new behavior emerge among them, figure out, you know, what would the life of that look like and how could we invest in it more? So community has at Notion given rise to a few of these programs like influencer, obviously the consultants, the course makers, the template sellers, all of that. But then also all of these folks who just want to like teach Notion in various ways as certified experts and wanting to give people like an actual sort of certification process that they could go into and get badges and all of that. I think that we really tried to concentrate on like, oh, what are we seeing people do without us necessarily pushing them in a direction? A really good example of this that I think is also a bit contrarian to how some people think about community is that certain ambassadors that we were working with wanted to go be community managers on their own external to sort of the walled garden of the Notion ambassadors. They wanted to go found their own Facebook group. We had somebody who was running the subreddit, which is now like wildly popular. I think that there's almost 300,000 people in that subreddit and figuring out how we could not only empower them and like remove friction from them being able to do that, but also connect them with resources to become even better at this skill that they wanted to build with community management. And so what was this ambassador program? So like, was it a really formal program where people had to sign up and then they kind of get a badge that they're a Notion ambassador? Like, what did that actually kind of look like from a program perspective? You know, early on, it kind of felt the way that Notion felt early on, which was very family-esque and very like, we're all in this together and we're all trying to learn from each other to get better at this thing that we're all trying to do. So it started very informally. It started with Ben inviting 20 people who we saw being really vocal ac across Twitter and YouTube, et cetera, into this Slack space. And then he just jumped on Zoom for an hour with each of them, essentially, and was like, why are you here? Why is this exciting? Why have you started being so vocal about this product? What would you ideally like this space to become? And we learned so much there around what people wanted to do and why they wanted to meet one another and what they wanted to learn. Uh, and I think Ben did such an excellent job then crafting the conversation and the moderation of this group around those particular things. So a good example of that is just hearing that people wanted to meet other Notion fans in their particular local area, and then creating a playbook that was like, okay, if you want to host a small coffee chat, this is what that looks like. If you want to host like a workshop, here's what that looks like. So it was just easy for people to replicate and then supporting them order pizza for everybody or find the right venue or generate an invite list, that type of thing. Gotcha. So you basically use these ambassadors to kind of have local meetups like around, I guess, 
the world, right? And then, so it sounded like you would give them a little bit of money to kind of help them throw these events. And then, uh, yeah, and then they could sort of be out there and be your, be your salespeople on the ground, if you will, going to kind of, you know, convert other people into Notion evangelists. Is that kind of how I think about it? I mean, at the same time, it like couldn't be more authentic, right? Because these yeah. are folks that are, they themselves are not compensated. I mean, there's many incentives, I think, built in because we would actually give them early access to features. They were really looped into the feedback cycle with our product managers. They had access to AMAs with a lot of the folks, you know, actually building day to day. So there were a lot of reasons, I think, to join this. But I think uh, it felt less like, you know, they were selling on the ground and more like they just wanted to show off what they were able to do with this thing. So cool to see that some of these early in-person gatherings occurred in markets like South Korea, Japan, Vietnam, Paris, and understanding how international by default this was going to be. Yeah, that's an amazing just like grassroots movement around Notion and kind of yeah, building the brand. Did you use this group of ambassadors to kind of like for product feedback as well? Were you sort of funneling in their voice into back to the product team? So early on, Notion, I think fairly classically or visibly did not have product managers for a very long time kind of the stripe model of, you know, we have incredible technical prowess on the team and then they're interfacing directly with go-to-market. So PMs didn't necessarily join until I think 2020, 2021. And so it really was like having engineers who were actively building these features in the ambassador group, being able to see what the chatter was whenever we shared something. And to give you a sense of how committed we were to this, there was some like elaborate feature flagging that had to be built into the shipping process in order for us to provide a preview for this select group hmm. before shipping to sort of the broader user base. But it was really important for us to do that because we understood that they had, I think, intimate understanding of what folks wanted to do with the product, what was going to be exciting, you know, what rough edges we should sand off before shipping things. Yeah, I mean, that's a great example of how you can just engage your kind of really core user base. And then once you do that and make them happy, right? It's like the the YC thing, of right? Ten, build something that like 10 people want and then kind of go from there, right? Like Notion was actually doing that kind of all the way up, it sounds like, where you had this core evangelized group and then you make them happy, deliver what they need. And they, then it sort of builds this like, you know, amazing organic growth engine as you're describing. Yeah, it's really cool. I think it's, it can be such a benefit to understand. And I'm borrowing this term from a woman named April Dunford, who's written like the best treatise on positioning. I'm sure you're very familiar, but she talks about best fit customers, which are essentially the folks that you want to replicate. Like if you could have, you know, 10,000 of this type of person, fantastic. And that's who we were so excited to have in these community spaces to really understand what their psychology and motivations were. Was there any interesting moments where you realized people were like making a lot of money off of Notion? Are there any examples? Because I mean, that'd be crazy to me where it's like, all right, I built this thing. And then it's like, oh, somebody else is making, you know, earning a living off of the, this product. Any, any moments that stand out? Absolutely. I mean, I would say that some of the more fantastic celebratory moments for me and Ben and then Francisco, who eventually joined the team on the community side, was being like, so-and-so quit their job to do this full-time. Like, we would slack each other and be like, another one did. Like, now that's like 24 people who are now doing this full-time. Or I remember us seeing an article. We didn't actually know about this before we saw the article on Mashable. It was about one of our users making, I think, something like $35,000 having sold one template over a four-month period. And we were just like, wow, this is really taking off in a way that we never could have estimated. And I think that that had been done 
even prior to us having like this robust template gallery on the website, people had started selling Notion templates on Gumroad and Etsy and like all of these other platforms. And it had just taken on a life of its own. Yeah, that's an amazing story. That must be such a fun feeling. Like, yeah, even going beyond just people actually using the product, but actually like quitting their job and having a livelihood based off of it. Wow, that must be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> also so rewarding. Like, I feel like in addition to being able to serve this customer base, it was like, we have changed lives in some really extraordinary ways. And in turn, the people who, you know, we count among those ranks had changed the trajectory of the company for us. So it was really this beautiful sort of symbiotic experience. And you had mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier in the conversation, but you use like influencers quite a bit to kind of help jumpstart the community-led growth. Can you talk about kind of how you approach like the influencer program at Notion? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, an instance of real organic <laughs> strategic growth for us where we started observing that some folks were just out there doing this. I remember Ben talking about seeing the data on Amplitude and I forget exactly what country it was, but it was something like, why did 700,000 people from Belarus like arrive at the website today? It probably wasn't Belarus, some geography where we were like, why would there be this massive spike in traffic? And it be was because like a YouTube video had dropped that was targeted toward that audience and was like really influential for them. So that was when I think we, we got serious around like, oh, let's investigate how to do this. But neither me or Ben was like a professional influencer manager. So it really was us reaching out to people cold, understanding what the pricing looked like, being like, what can we rationalize on this? One of my favorite moments here is we reached out to a productivity influencer on YouTube and they were like, well, you should talk to my agent, Dave. And we were like, your agent, Dave. And then we would talk, we went to Dave and Dave was like, oh, I represent like, you know, I, multiple people that have this profile. And then we were like, oh, can we get in front of those folks? And so we kind of, you know, worked our way or stepped our way through understanding how this worked. And over time, it became like an incredibly robust skill set for Ben and then started taking off where there were like, you know, a dozen of these influencer activations a month. And then we hired this truly miraculous woman, Lexi Barnhorn, at the end of 2021, who I think is maybe like the best influencer manager in tech. Uh, she came from Curology. And now I think that they're running like more than two per day activations on Influencer. And it's really ended up scaling massively. That's amazing. Um, was it was YouTube yeah. the main channel or were there other channels that you sort of found productive to work with influencers? Early on, certainly YouTube was the one that was front and center for us. But then TikTok <laughs> sort of came in in a huge way. And we realized how cost efficient that was where you could maybe spend $400. And because the way the algorithm worked, somebody who maybe didn't have like the biggest follower count would still be able to get over a million views on something. So we really saw that, you know, your investment could scale really nicely on TikTok. And one of the great win moments there was, and we didn't know this was happening in advance, but The Verge published an article and the title was literally TikTok Teen's New Obsession is Enterprise Software. And we thought to ourselves, like, like, had we tried to do this ourselves, we couldn't have threaded the needle more perfectly on the B2C, B2B divide. Like, what an amazing validation of what we were trying to do. Do you think TikTok, like, drove actual, like, leads and signups to Notion? Or was it more, like, talent recruiting play to get in front of a younger audience? Like, it's something I wrestle with myself. I see the crazy viral potential on TikTok, but I'm like, oh, should I do more doc stuff over there? Do people care about sales and marketing enterprise software on TikTok? Like, how do you think about this? I mean, I think you can safely say 
that somebody is not going to buy a massive number of enterprise seats in a piece of software because they happen to see a video on TikTok. Like, I don't think that that sort of direct tie necessarily exists. Maybe it's happened, but I don't think that that's necessarily the backing of that strategy. What it does do, I think, is lend itself to this bigger concept that we were like very dedicated to it notion around ubiquity. And just can we make this thing as ubiquitous as humanly possible, where people feel like they are hearing about it from all sides. They saw a billboard, they saw it on Twitter, they heard about it from a friend. Like we wanted to like surround sound as much as we possibly could. And I think TikTok did that to such a degree that it ended up de-risking a lot of sort of these enterprise interactions where folks were like, oh, I've heard about that from so many people at this point that yes, I do feel comfortable entering into this size of deal just because like it's obviously so established and all, and so vibrant. Yeah. No, I mean, like when your product just becomes part of like the cultural zeitgeist, it, it makes everything a lot easier, right? It makes those sales conversations easier. And like, I mean, that's so much of just marketing's job is just getting the product into like the consideration set when somebody's thinking about, you know, buying this, this type of software. Yeah. And it wasn't a rare occurrence for us to hear from folks who are, you know, C-suite or VP level executives that they heard about it from their kid or <laughs> that we had reached out to them and then they happened to mention it at the dinner table and their teenager was like, oh my God, that's so cool. You have to work with them. And it's, it's amazing how some of those interactions still remain so human and are not just like cut and dry the way you might think that they are. I'm curious how you think about kind of like the budget around influencer programs. I'm thinking about this for myself at Doc. And like you mentioned it a little bit in one of your answers where it's like, okay, could be maybe $400 for some, but then I've talked to some influencers on LinkedIn and it's like $50,000 to do, you know, a podcast and YouTube, but it's so expensive. Like, I don't know. How do you think about kind of that budget range and dividing spend? And if like, if I was to experiment with this at Doc, like, do you need to do it with like five or 10 people and kind of place a bunch of bets and see how it works? Yeah. Like, how do you sort of think about getting this strategy going? Yeah, I am by no means an expert on this. Lexi would have a far more precise and scientific response. But the way that I saw her and Ben operate was having sort of like your bedrock of like, okay, we know that if we make these types of investments, that we're going to see a payback. Like we're going to see it through, you know, the number of clicks on a link in the description on YouTube, or like we're able to, you know, attribute enough that we are like, these are pretty de-risked bets. But then every so often or on like a quarterly basis, can we do some things that are sort of outside of that range just to see if it has outsized payoff? So can we pay $50,000 to work with an influencer who seems to just have, you know, incredible, not only relevance for our audience, but reach? And see how much that drives. So I think it's sort of a combination of the two where you want to be, you know, as aware as you possibly can on sort of most of what you are investing in, but then always giving yourself that latitude to be like, should we work with Mr. Beast? Should we try to get in front of those folks? You never want to be like, oh, we can't do that because we're so tied to like this particular type of payback schema. A Notion Mr. Beast video would be interesting and crazy. I mean, it's crazy that he even said recently, he's like, brands can't even pay enough for what my videos are worth. And that's why he's like creating Feastables and all these other products for him to sell himself. It's it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Now he has multiple channels where it's like, well, you can't be on the main Mr. Beast channel, but you can be on this offshoot channel. And it's pretty incredible to see. 
And you mentioned like, you know, Notion has a lot of like credit programs for startups and sort of channel partners. And then you also do like, I think Notion's free for students, right? Like, can you talk about this strategy? It seems like you're really trying to seed Notion early on with folks sort of early in their careers or company life cycle. Is that that right? Absolutely. And that was actually one of the first big campaigns that I worked on was sort of the back to school window in 2019. The logic there was we were seeing so much early traction among students. And they were also the loudest, like bar none. They were the most vocal across all of the social media channels about their experience, what they were doing with it. And even though I was given a lot of advice, and I think we all were, that students churn fairly easily, you may never realize revenue from them. It's absolutely an audience that is worth it to invest in, especially if you are running any sort of creator tools business or community. I think students are just like incredible advocates and are incredibly active on your behalf. So that was sort of the idea there was if we just remove sort of the barrier to entry for them, they would create so many beautiful examples of how the product worked. And then I think we have validated since that time that they do in fact enter the workforce and then (laughs) pound the table and sort of demand to use the tools that they love. We've heard of, about a few sort of rogue movements inside of larger companies where people have said, no, we really, we really have to use Notion. We refuse to use Google Docs and their IT departments end up bending to their will. So we're very thankful to the folks who went through that arc with us. It makes so much sense. And it's such a good lesson. And just like the long tail that's powering amazing software businesses like Notion. And that's what what makes product like growth so powerful, too, is like you have a group of people who can help spread your message and get, you know, push your product out in the world. And it might not be where you make your money in the short term, but it's probably where you make your money over the long term and how you build like a generational company. Yeah, I think it, it does go back to that ubiquity piece where it's just so important to think through how your company can appear to be everywhere at once. And with the startup program you mentioned, I think that there's now a significant, I don't know the exact percentage, but back at the time when we launched the program, something like 28% of all startups on Crunchbase that had raised over a million dollars were using Notion to some degree. Um, And I think the reason it feels so ubiquitous among startups is because we were able to identify these partnerships with incredible VC firms, with AWS, with Stripe, with folks who were really super connectors among this audience to offer Notion at a significant discount and get people going and then seeing how it just like took root at a lot of places that have now since scaled massively. So you're one of the best content marketers in tech and created first round review before you joined Notion, which is like one of my absolute favorite publications for for startup advice. Like, I'd love to know more about how you kind of approach content marketing in Notion. Like, what was your editorial strategy? What were the sort of the different content types? How did you think about it? Well, that is very, very kind. And it means a lot to me coming from you. So thank you for that. Content was very different at Notion than it was at first round. I mean, when you are... At a VC firm, your MO is to create as much awareness as you possibly can so that a lot of startups will want to raise their hand and, you know, come in and say hello to you. At Notion, it was really making it possible for content to be very purposeful in like a driving certain results sense, where we wanted content to be useful in driving conversions, obviously, but also activation, providing enough education in order for people to really make the most and get the most value out of the product. So again, I can't take a ton of credit for this. We started content marketing in earnest actually a year after I joined because there was so much to do between 
those two points in time. And Nate Martins came on at the end of January, really sort of started driving this in earnest. And we started with customer stories, just because it was going to be, I think, the highest priority to demonstrate to our teams, our prospective team customers, what this actually was capable of doing for them. So it really started with that. And then dual investment in all of this user education. So starting to create tutorial videos and written guides using our templates as sort of centerpieces and unpacking how they worked and why they were so good in ways that other people could then sort of graft to their own organizations. So that was the early strategy with content and not so much a focus on thought leadership, but rather sort of like the nuts and bolts of getting people in the door and then helping them be successful. And how did like community eventually relate to content? Were you sort of using the ambassadors or the things you're learning in the community to actually create content? Absolutely. And I think that content and community, honestly, among the all the functions inside of marketing, they're capable of forming this incredibly virtuous cycle where the community, so many stories are being generated by them about how they're using things, what that's made possible in their lives. How can we use social media? And storytelling to amplify those experiences. And then at the same time, all this content that we create, can we share it with the community in a way that makes them excited to go out and share it with even more people? So I think they were such an excellent distribution powerhouse for us. So thankful for that. But at the same time, like they, we, we were constantly looking for these sorts of anomalous or fun stories of what Notion had done for people that we could then tell through various means. And I would say content at Notion was not just sort of like this written side of things or video side of things, but also social media. I can't overstate the value of social media for Notion as its own distribution channel. Um, I'll call out Alex Howe, who runs now like a massive empire of social media for Notion. And the last thing I'll say on that, and then I'll stop rambling about it, is that we saw the value of visual storytelling and how that should really take the lead on social media. So you'll see that almost all of Notion's posts were actually include a visual that isn't just sort of a flat like, oh, yeah, that's a GIF of how this feature works, but is its own little story microcosm where you can imagine the person who is using the product and they're doing it for some specific reason. And all of that I attribute to Alex and David Tibbetts, who kind of pioneered that. And Notion has such a unique like brand aesthetic, as you mentioned, like there's the emojis, the black and white characters, like you mentioned one example in social media. But yeah, how did you think about that des like design aesthetic and how, I don't know, Notion's creative direction overall? I was so fortunate to step into the role when that the illustration aesthetic already existed. And I love the story of how that came together. We have this incredible artist. Uh, Roman Muradov, who is like a New Yorker level illustrator who needed some studio space. And because Notion's first office tended to be like a little large for the group that was there, was able to like work in that space and then became incredibly close to Ivan. And I got the benefit of working with him. So his vision has really, I think, defined a lot of that. I was telling people that sometimes I would wake up in the middle of the night and just be like, how is Roman? <laughs> I want to make sure that he's having the best life ever because he was so important. But beyond that, I think that we also created some sort of aesthetic rules that just gave the brand a consistency and a memorability. So like a good example is that whenever we were telling these stories visually, we only had a handful of websites that we would actually show that <laughs> dovetailed with this sort of monochromatic or elegant or elevated or cultured 
concept we wanted to perpetuate. So like the MoMA website or the New Yorker website, or like we would really go for sort of these like high design prioritization of beauty and craft. We would tell stories based on on those types of things. Um, So we had like a whole sort of design playbook that delineated a lot of this. Yeah, it's amazing when you have a fabulous designer at your company, like Luke Chasek was the one uh, at Lattice and I made him my co-founder at Doc because it's just like these people are so talented and they, I mean, they define a brand aesthetic and it's really hard to find people who can, I don't know, make magic like that happen that really stands out in in the world. Um, So much of design can blur together, you know? Absolutely. Like the thing that blows my mind about Ramon's work is just how timeless it is. Like it doesn't feel like of a particular era. And so it, I don't think it's feeling aged at all. The thing that I love so much, and we, we didn't really know how to feel about it when it first started happening, but now I would say it's a definite strength, is people wanting to do their own image in that same style. And so now you see on Twitter a bunch of people who have done that and it just feels really pervasive. And let's talk about brand campaigns, because as Notion kind of grew up and scaled, right, you started to run more brand campaigns. And like every time I go to an airport now, I see some Notion ads. <laughs> I think there was one I saw. I was trying to remember. It was like recipes and a product roadmap side by side, which is like a good example of the B2C and B2B. And then you started to do like some video campaigns. And so can you talk a little bit about kind of, yeah, what the strategy was behind the brand campaigns? Yeah, I think there's been two, I would say, like concerted or more holistic brand campaigns that I'll call attention to. There's been more since then, but the two that I sort of was there for, both of them were really dedicated to this this idea that Notion was good for both work and life. Like we really saw this as a, a key differentiator for us, that it was something that people could love to use across that chasm. And also, I think during this, these weird few years, folks were seeing sort of life and work more blended and could they have a tool that made them feel better about that or more in control of that experience? So the first campaign that sent that message, and I worked on this with this woman, Andrea Lim, who is now a brand manager at Notion still, was all in the interface, was all telling the story inside the interface of, you know, we had a dad who was going on paternity leave and on one of his Notion instances, he was planning with his wife how, they were going to assemble all of their to-dos. And then on the other was working with his team to figure out the coverage plan for his paternity leave. We had one where these girls decided to quit their job in order to found a startup together. <laughs> and then we're putting everything together inside of Notion. And it felt really kinetic and also emotional. And I think that it really underscored for us that there is an emotional center to this product that doesn't exist all the time, that is really special and unique. And how can the brand campaigns really orient themselves around that? I won't go into as much detail because I didn't work on it as much as the existing team. But the extension of that was this For Your Life's Work campaign that ended up being like highly visible, I think, on billboards and digitally. But taking that sense of like, okay, now live action, how can we see how people are managing their life and work with this? Yeah, I remember so well all the Notion ads and billboards because I mean, it did such a remarkable job of like showing the product in a way that like worked well on a billboard. Like we ran a lot of billboards at Lattice. We never put the product really on the billboard because it was just so hard to do. But Notion, I think you really threaded the needle there. It was, it was awesome. We tried to keep it as simple as possible. I remember us constantly being like, no, simpler. No, it has to be. It's just a checklist. There's no. Yeah, we really tried super hard on that side of things. And then credit to Ivan and Akshay, who's 
another one of the co-founders and was COO. They really gave me a lot of latitude to like experiment with things that were sort of far afield when it came to these outdoor marketing campaigns. Like we had a few really big murals in San Francisco and New York that just said software should be beautiful. And that was a campaign that got extended to London and a few other places. And the idea was to create this curiosity gap, but also like really get to that emotional crux of like, I think most people do want their digital experience to be more beautiful and that they deserve that and wanted them to be like, what is this notion thing? They seem to understand something implicitly. Yeah. I mean, and that's what also made notion such a, I don't know, special piece of software is that there was a certain craft and attention to detail behind it that like, you know, is missing in Google Docs and Word and all the other platforms. You mentioned London here. So I want to like talk a little bit about marketing international because I think I saw a stat, I don't know if this is right, but like 80% of Notion's users are outside the US. And like, how did you think about international marketing? I imagine you did this sort of way earlier in the life cycle than kind of most companies do. Incredibly early. Notion was absolutely international by default. When I arrived there in January 2019, South Korea was the next largest market out, outside of the US. And then fast follow with Japan and the UK. It was one of those staggering things where we wondered how are we going to, you know, be able to increase this momentum when we couldn't have a massive budget. And we certainly did. We're so far away from having enough headcount on the team in order to serve those markets very specifically. So uh, obviously, and I've talked about this a lot now already in this interview, but community was hugely helpful for us. Um, And then we really did turn the key on internationalization, I think, way earlier than most people do. Um, When, In fact, when I tell people, they're like, oh, when was your first localization launch? It was August 2020 in Korean. And that was honestly like a year and a half after we were just a team of 10 or 11 people. We were like 400 people when we even started contemplating that. And I think that we were under 100 still. And with that, it was just really like, can we be really scrappy, but at the same time, really polished? And the ambassadors who we had in South Korea at the time were just instrumental. Like the day that we launched, we did a press conference And then later in the day, there was this live stream that two of them hosted that 8,000 people tuned in for. That was all about Notion and what we wanted to make possible for the Korean audience. That's such a crazy story. And it's, I don't know, it's an amazing story to, again, show the power of community-led growth that, like, if you can empower these different ambassadors and people around the world, like, they will actually just grow grow those markets for you. Because I was, like, an ask question of, like, how you sort of understand these local markets. And I guess you didn't even really need to because you had these ambassadors who were there who really understood it and kind of talk about Notion in a really authentic way for, for South Koreans or the UK audience or, or whoever it was. And I can't, I cannot thank them enough because not only did they help us with Mindshare that way, but they also helped us understand what we needed to make possible uh, in those ecosystems and what was going to be important to those folks. Brand campaigns have to be so nuanced. So helping us really understand what was going to connect with people the best, they really channeled a lot of that knowledge back to us. And it's beyond grateful. I'd love to switch gears and kind of talk about how Notion actually like sold into enterprises and teams. Like, does Notion have a sales team? Like, how did that sort of path look like? Because I imagine you had all of these champions that were within organizations like at Lattice, it was Emily Smith who kind of drove the adoption. But yeah, I don't know. What sort of programs did you sort of put around that to actually convert kind of all this free usage into to paying customers? 
Yeah. I mean, I got very lucky early on because I call him my work sibling, but our head of sales got hired. I think he started two months after me. This is David Apple. And he's, I think, just one of the like OGs and one of the best people who knows this space so well. Um, But he and I really got to partner very closely. um, And he was so thoughtful about how we should approach this new enterprise motion. And we were able to really work closely together on messaging. He did a ton of jobs to be done interviews when he first arrived with these customers that were probably going to be like either large team deployments or maybe even starting into the enterprise category to really know what that mindset was. Also, what product features we were absolutely going to have to be able to check the box on before having a lot of those conversations. And then that team started to grow. And I would say that the marketing and sales team got to stay pretty close knit because the tone was set that we were partners from the very beginning. Yeah. I always like to think one team, one dream, you know, like all the sales and marketing fighting is such nonsense, right? It's like, we're all working on the same goal, which is driving pipeline and then revenue. And it's like, we're all on the same team working towards the same thing. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then I would be completely remiss if I didn't mention that in January of 2021, I got joined by a co-head of marketing, Rachel Hepworth who then brought her incredible enterprise experience from Slack, where she had been for multiple years, and really started like bringing in demand gen and a lot of that quantitative muscle that helped us more specifically, I would say, like drive MQLs in a very concerted way, in a more classic way than I was experienced with. I couldn't have asked for a better partner and say enough nice things about her. Like when you're building a marketing, there's so many functions in marketing, right? Like you can't be a master at all of them. And so it's like you have to build complements around you to like accomplish all the different things. Like you you only scale by growing the team around you. And that was definitely, I don't know, a lesson that I, I learned at, at Lattice myself. Yeah. I mean, marketing is so horizontal that I think the art side spike on the science side, not to be too reductive, but that tends to be the case or the math side or, you know, like the messaging side. And I think just being really self-aware as a marketing leader and knowing what you have to bring on to the team to complement yourself. And a lot of people are like, oh, would you, is that a very like common thing to have like co-heads of marketing who sort of split in these ways? And I was like, no, that is not very common. And I'm not sure that it would have worked had she and I not had the dynamic that we had. What was the notion experience like for you kind of on a personal level? Because it must have been pretty crazy, right? Like scaling this company, being part of a company that was, you know, grew from 10 people to a pretty big company, right? Like, how did you sort of handle this maybe emotionally and personal growth? How did you sort of keep up with the company's growth curve? That is such a good question. I feel like that question is so seldom asked. So thank you. You know, when I stepped into this, I was not a very traditional profile for this type of role. So I'm really, really grateful and kind of amazed that Ivan gave me the opportunity to do this and really saw what I had done at first round and saw what potential there might be for me to think about the storytelling for this company early on. But given the fact that I had not been through a classic sort of rocket ship arc, and I certainly hadn't been firsthand exposed to a ton of later stage enterprise motion, it was this experience of having to execute while learning on my feet constantly. And I don't think that that is by any means like a unique or special experience. I think that everybody working at a startup is doing that to some extent. But I do think it's like this really sort of like dig deep experience of like, how can I scale myself as fast as humanly possible while continuing to get things done? 
And then when you add management into the mix and a lot of folks who are going through this type of high growth, high personal, you know, uh, sort of stretch experience, like you also have to provide a therapeutic space for a lot of folks who are going through a lot of the same things that you are at the same time. Yeah, it gets very meta where you're going through it yourself. You're learning how to be, you know, a manager, then director, then leader. And then you also have to like, uh, you know, empathize with the people on your team who are also going through that and pushing themselves. But I think it like, I don't know, that's how I built trust with my team where it's like, Hey, I, I'm going through this too. You know, like we're all going through this together. And I think that's what makes like these startup rocket ships such a special experience that we all sort of look back on. Yeah. I don't know about you. I'd be so interested to hear, but there are so many moments when you just have to say, I don't know. I don't know, like, let's all get into a room and try to reason from first principles. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's like, you just got to be honest and figure it out, right? That's that's the best start of people just can kind of figure it out. And if they don't know themselves, they can go talk to people or go online and, and I don't know, just s- somehow, some way get it done. Um, yeah, I think that that's the biggest thing and something that I did not know was going to play such a big role was being able to field this cohort of mentors that were just going to help me on a daily basis so that I could text them and be like, how do you buy a billboard? Do I call the 1-800 number? Yeah. <laughs> and then being like, no, here is my friend, Sam at Clear Channel. I'll set you up. Like yeah, all of that. Yeah. So true. No, you need, you need the community around you for sure. I'd love to end today's conversation with, you know, I don't know, maybe advice for other startups or founders who are like thinking about community-led growth. You know, Notion is definitely a, a special company and a special product, but are there any like broader frameworks or ways that companies can maybe think about community-led growth for them? I mean, I've, I've shared this framework before, but uh, so I don't want to belabor it, but maybe I can also send it to you afterward. Yeah, we can put but it in the show like- notes. Yes. Knowing knowing where you are sort of on these spectrums of how B2C are you? How enterprise are you? Where are you in your journey with product market fit? And how can you create the form factor of community that's basically going to not just sort of amplify your profile in the market, but maximize your learning per unit time, especially if you're still approaching product market fit? How can you convene a community that is really going to help you learn as fast as you possibly can about what people want and need and how you're going to replicate that type of customer. So it could be a customer advisory board. It could be a focus group that you sort of bring together every so often. Uh, It could be a champions community where you are trying to bring together a bunch of people who are very excited about you inside of your customer companies and you can lean on them to help expand all of that. But a few things that I think really came up for me in terms of like learnings that are maybe cutting across all those things, having somebody who is sort of full-time dedicated to the care and feeding of this community, if it is a priority for you and is going to be a growth lever for you, can't overstate the case. Like the fact that Ben joined so soon is like 100% the reason we succeeded. Um, And then also being able to start small. I see a lot of folks who believe that their success metric is, oh, we brought together like many thousands of people in this space. But there might not be that same sort of velocity of engagement or sort of active use because folks are not sure who else is in that room with them, et cetera. Being able and giving yourself the permission to start small and then learn from that group and then move out to that next concentric circle and learn from them and then move out from there. If you have sort of the buy-in and the time to do that, I think it's really helpful. Well, thank you so much for the the wonderful conversation, Camille. If people want to follow up and reach out to you, like where's the, I don't know, the best social media channel to, to find you? 
you know, I'm still, I'm holding it down on Twitter, man. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm at, at Camille Ricketts. I'm still there. And I, I love to be helpful and chat about this type of stuff. So I hope I get to meet some of your listeners after this. But thank you so much for having me on. This was so fun. Thank you. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow and Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform, or find every episode at growandtellshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Thank you for listening.